Welcome, guys, to the Revive Stronger, Stronger podcast. I'm your host, Steve Hall, and we have another Q&A with Dr. Mike Isretel, um, who has been prolific, as always, on social media and on podcasts and uh, has been battling away with Eric Helms over the past few weeks, which has been fantastic. And the feedback we've had from those discussions has been amazing. And if you're lucky, we may well have those coming again in future. Um, so how's it going, Mike? How are you? Um, are you? Uh, is the brain still functioning now you've been battling Helms? Man, yeah. You know, those are super, super fun. And, you know, we end up uh, usually just having a really interesting discussion and kind of feeding off of each other and uh, coming up with some really good... Um, certainly, we're like, those discussions can be used for, like, to generate ideas about areas for future research because him and I both yes. get to points where we're like, you know... He thinks it's one way, I think it's another, or we both think it's a similar way, but neither one of us can be sure. So we're like, yeah, you would just need better and more better research, et cetera. So. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's discussions within our Revive Stronger Facebook group. There's like 2,000 active members in there now, and they're um, asking questions about these debates. And uh, one of the answers I just came to was kind of like, there's... You have, there's many different methods, um, but you have to have the means, uh, which is kind of like, if as long as you've got the principles, there can be many ways to program. For um, sure. And Mike and Eric both settle upon hitting the principles. It's just they program slightly differently. And that's where the art comes in. That's where the science isn't clear. So um, For sure. it's, it's fantastic. But to get into the questions, and so the listeners know, if you do want to get questions uh, for Mike, and we will be requesting some shortly, do join the revivestronger.com Facebook group, which will be linked below, um, and you can ask them there. So the first question is from Rajiv Malkani, and uh, he has asked, in the past, Dr. Mike has talked about the scenario where training five years with inferior technique will cost the trainee time in building muscle to fix their motor patterns versus getting it right from the start. He said, what strategies would you recommend to mitigate this once it is what's happened? Mm. So we're asking basically, okay, we have been training like shit for five years. Now we want to retool the situation. Yeah. You know, so, so normally I could say something like, you know, volume, as long as your volume is high, you can kind of do plenty of work um, anyway, but not push it super close to failure um, and still learn the technique for the new movements. Um, but I think that such a situation is a little bit problematic because mm -hmm. The very nature of, of having exposure to high volumes increases your fatigue. And one of the first things to go with fatigue is uh, new motor pattern acquisition abilities. And then after that, shortly goes the ability to even fluidly practice older motor patterns and improve on them. So because skill acquisition is such a fatigue-sensitive variable, it's a tough call. I think that... Um, there's some really good news and here's the good news. You know, you can coincide one of these things with a low volume phase. So you take about a month of lower volumes and in this case, lower weights too. train much less to give your body a break, which it probably needs anyway, if you time it. And then during this break, you can really focus on technique, really focus on making sure that you're doing the exercises properly for the first time and not worrying about weight on the bar, going to failure. And then after that phase is over, you really haven't lost anything because you would have had to take one of them anyway. And now you're a little bit ahead of the curve when you get into your first actual volume phase because you're already a little bit more proficient with the techniques and now you can train them a little harder than you maybe could before. What I would recommend, however, is this. You, you just have to make up for it with set numbers and maybe some machine training. So here's what I mean. Let's say we're working on fixing our squat and making it a real good Steve Hall high bar squat, right? Just really awesome technique. And let's say we're real far away from that. We've just been doing bro shit. I mean, I don't have to tell the viewers what that means. Round everything, partials, screaming, etc. So 
you know, the first time you do these super deep squats, you're going to have to use like 50, 40, 50, 60 kilos maybe. You're going to want to stay pretty far away from failure because then your technique starts to degrade the closer to failure you get. So clearly squats just aren't going to be for at least a mesocycle or like remotely overloading, right? But what you can do is do the squats first in your leg workout, get good practice with them, and then go over to maybe the leg press, the leg extension, do some lunges, maybe hack squats. Most people's hack squat technique uh, is pretty good. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those that's really hard to fuck that up. And it's actually a little bit more difficult to do partial reps on the hack squat than it even is to do full reps. Is the machine just kind of coaxes you in all the way down. So maybe use those simpler exercises that you don't suck as much as um, for more of your volume a little bit closer to failure. And that way you can have a good hypertrophic stimulus. It just won't come from squats for a mesocycle or two. Now, as you go 60 kilos, 70 kilos, 80 kilos, your technique starts to really get good. Then you can start to do some more sets with squats and really get up there. And, and I said more sets for a reason. For a while, a couple of mesocycles, you don't want to push the repetitions in reserve too far because then your technique will almost certainly break down. You don't want to lift way too heavy weights because your technique almost certainly will break down. But how do you make this a sort of effective exercise with staying, you know, four reps away from failure and not using heavy weights? Well, the answer is you just have to do a lot of volume to make up for that, like, like eight sets or 10 sets per workout, you know, like, like you could be getting 15 to 20 reps on each of these sets, but you're doing 10 to 12 reps. It sucks. It's boring, but you're really focusing on really good technique. And the good thing about focusing on good technique is that you can really focus on the mind-muscle connection more and on your movement patterns and actually get more out of the movement than, than you have ever gotten on squats. So it's a little bit of a self-solving problem where the situation isn't as bad as maybe even I painted it in that Facebook post. Um, because the new technique is more effective, even doing it in a learning style or maybe not the first couple of weeks, but as it gets even a little bit more challenging, it's fundamentally more disruptive. It's more range of motion, et cetera. And it, it shouldn't be a problem. You know, when you go from fake squatting to real high bar squatting, boy, oh boy, that's usually going to make you more sore, et cetera. And disruption is not really the problem. Neither is progress. Um, so, so that, that's one of those situations where just doing more sets and still practicing the movement can be a temporary solution. Eventually, after a couple of months, you're really good at this exercise, and then you can train it conventionally, right? Um, I think the bigger problem is not for bodybuilders or hypertrophy trainees, it's for powerlifters or strength trainees. For them, yes, they can go through a hypertrophy phase with leg pressing and stuff to get bigger while they relearn the movements, but you know, that for a couple of months later, you know, maybe they're in a certain weight class, they can't get much bigger, or the sport specificity starts to be really low. For them, staying too away from real heavy weights for too long is just not great. I mean, it's not bad, it's just gonna delay their progress. But it's one of those things that it can has to happen because if your squat really sucks, sometimes you got to do a hard reset and raw, just retool your whole squat. Um, so, so those I would say, I hopefully I answered the question. Those are some mitigating ways to, to not you, – you're definitely not going to lose gains. You're just not going to make gains as quickly as you could have had you initially – made the decision to clean up your technique or start clean, et cetera. Um, and and, and I, I will have to say this, it's great to look for ways to mitigate problems, totally. But sometimes you have to realize that you just gotta pay the piper. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's almost people say like, you know, oh man, I, I missed a meal today. What can I do to make up for it? Like, you know, fundamentally you can do some things but just don't miss meals. <laughs> and, and if you miss the meal, you just keep eating normally and, and you'll be fine. But you, you got to put in the work to get the results. And when you it, – it, it's almost like it's almost like this. If, if we um, describe this way in which you can transition to good technique after five years and it's just there's no losses of, of ability and, and everything's really good, it's almost like why even bother with good technique? You'll just learn it eventually. Well, why even bother is that because all of the methods that you can do to mitigate this later transition are partial in effect. They're not total in effect. So you're just not – you're never going to have the same kinds of gains that somebody would have going straight through with good technique, which is why we preach good technique to anyone who will listen as early as they will listen. That being said, you know, that little bit of lost potential is one of the minor reasons why we preach good technique at the beginning because injury, risk – 
Acute risk is a minor factor because you're usually too weak at those stages to hurt yourself bad. You're not going to rip your quad off your bone when you're squatting like 150 kilos. 250, yeah, you may very well. But what really ends up happening is wear and tear. Um, Wear and tear is the real big problem because you don't even know that that's happening until you're eight or 10 years in, and all of a sudden your knees just start giving you problems. And you're like, but I've been doing good technique. And then you realize, you know what? I used to grind my knees into a fucking pulp for the first five years. What can you do about that? Nothing. What's done is done. All you can do is your best. And um, a lot of bodybuilders, a lot of strength athletes have had their careers ended through um, their bodies just no longer cooperating. One individual that's an exception is John Meadows, actually, who if you ever watch his lifting videos, he's always real meticulous in his technique Mm -hmm. and he never does anything really stupid. And he's been doing that kind of training for like decades. He never really did anything that dumb. And he's like in his mid to late 40s and still training super hard at a pro level because he just never had the opportunity to fall apart. Um, whereas, you know, you take someone you with all due respect, a ton of respect for this athlete, somebody like Branch Warren, you know, people would say like in his videos, you know, like noobs would be like, oh, he's doing lateral raises wrong. He's doing swinging all the weight, et cetera. And he did this with every exercise, just real momentum and stuff. And noobs would be like, oh, he's doing that wrong. And someone would be like, shut up, pussy. You know, you're a fag. You're not like nearly as big as him. What are you saying? And like those guys have a point where like it's difficult to critique somebody who's that much bigger because maybe you just can't even contextualize what's going on. But the retort to that is, you know, I I actually can't think of a muscle off the top of my head that Branch Warren hasn't torn. I don't mean pulled. I mean torn. Like I think he's done both biceps, both triceps. He's done his quad. Like, I mean, right? Like – after, you know, before when he started putting out videos and he was training like that, he was injury free and everyone's like, this is awesome. I'm going to train like Branch. After 10 years of those videos, you look at what, you know, he's gotten from it. Man, I don't know if I'd follow in that path, right? So uh, there, there, there's some stuff that, you know, if you do something bad, yes, you can mitigate it later to some extent. But we got to understand mitigation is almost never a complete process. So soon as you find out about good technique, start doing it. Mm-hmm. No, I have to, I, it really reminds me of, um, kind of, I, I feel almost bad saying it, but not really. It's like those people who have been obese in the past, then lost weight. And now they have to do things that yep. people who haven't been obese don't need to do to stay at that lean level. It's kind of a shadow that follows them forever. Yeah. Yep. Totally um, agreed. This has reminded me of something I did want to ask you, Mike, in terms of kind of technique. And I heard you bring it up with uh, Eric Helms recently, actually, and I wanted to delve into it because I don't think we actually delved in. Well, you delved into it in that podcast. Um, And that was to do with active range of motion of muscles. Um, And I guess something I can immediately relate it to is kind of when you're doing your lateral raises, uh, which ridiculously impressive um, and incredibly heavy for for someone looking on like myself. But um, obviously people were referencing, oh, you're coming up higher than what the the delt would even be involved for. You're bringing in the traps. Um, And that's kind of something that relates to the active range of motion. I don't know if you want to talk about it. Um, There's a lot of kind of people talking about like full range of motion maybe is the wrong recommendation. We should be recommending active range of motion for the muscle for the particular person. Um, I don't know if you've got any immediate thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do have immediate thoughts on that. It is a little bit of a business close to a pet peeve as I'll have. So most of the time when I have pet peeves, it's really just jokes and opportunities for me to make uh, cute, humorous remarks on video or on social media. Um, a lot of things don't actually piss me off in real life. I'm very rarely angry. But this is one that is irksome because of the following. The idea that the muscle has an active range of motion, so to speak, is uh, there's some merit to it, first of all. Second of all, um, Some individuals will run into situations in the real world where their range of motion will be too large um, for the muscle to be properly and safely trained in conjunction with other muscles and joints without bringing in uh, muscles uh, and joints that just don't really have much to do with the movement. A really good example of that is um, if you ever uh, watch regular people walk into a gym for the first couple of times or for 15 years, they just never asked anybody. uh, they do lat pull downs and they go all the way to their belly button or just yep. to their thighs. And you're like, that's a pull down tricep extension combo. <laughs> Brilliant. 
So the thing is like, if you tell people that, that you're training your lats with that, they're going to say, but you're also training your triceps a lot and maybe even your chest to push it down all the way. And, 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 and you'll say yes, but I think it still trains my lats well and it's still safe. That last part, I don't think that exercise is very safe because this transition here, man, that does your joints a real, real disservice there with your shoulder. I have like genetically just super lucky with super healthy and resilient shoulders. I can't do that fucking shit, man. So um, I just, in, in, in the load you'd have to limit your lat pull downs to, to even do this quirky little transition, like unless you're working on your internal rotators is the number one thing that just becomes a problem for your lats to get a good workout, right? So that's a good example, actual example of that sort of situation. That being said, my problem with this is multiple fold. One, an active musculature is not necessarily the only kind that grows. Passive stretching under load does hypertrophy musculature, number one. Number two, people have this fetishism with isolation thinking that if you isolate something completely by itself, it automatically becomes better of an exercise. I have no idea why we ever do squats in that case and why we don't just do single leg leg extensions, right? Maybe single leg leg extensions with two pads holding your leg together front uh, side to side so that you don't use your adductors to, or abductors to stabilize the leg at all because, you know, that's a problem, Right. So when we've refuted the you know sort of myth, and I actually had as one of my formal little Facebook myths is like extreme isolation, we realize that you know the really what's happening, what we really need is is the target muscle being overloaded, and are the muscles that are assisting with that movement muscles were okay also training that exercise. I do very little direct trap work. I do shrugs twice a week with relatively light weights. So all of my upright rows, my bent rows, and my lateral raises involve my traps. By the way, it's impossible to not involve your traps in any degree of lateral raise because as your shoulders come up, your scapulae are turned by your trap muscles to, in order to continue to expose the glenohumeral joint to higher and higher joint angles so that you don't bust your fucking acromion off the bone, right? It's super simple. You're going to use your traps anyway. If you use them a lot at the top to get a shrug, the next question you have to ask is, what is the purpose of the shrug? For me, it's to tuck my shoulders in so that they don't experience joint pain at the top of the movement. I don't actually use, if you watch my videos closely, the shrugs are not generating any more momentum. They don't even get the dumbbells to go any higher. They just pull in. The reason I do that is because it just feels better for my joints. It's the same thing I do on the squat. You know, I do that weird little hip tilt at the beginning. Yeah. It just sets me back into lordosis and makes my hips feel good. If I don't do that, my hips and or spine don't feel great. Do I recommend that to anybody? No. Do I, should you try it? Not necessarily, though. If you like to, that's fine. Is it magic? No. But it works for me, and I literally see no problem with it at all because people say, well, well your traps are taking away from your side delts. No, they're not. That's nonsense, right? right? Uh, so uh, it's just a, a movement at the very top just to keep my shoulder safe. Even if I was using some uh, traps somehow to abduct my arm, which is fucking impossible because your traps don't attach to your fucking humerus, even if I was somehow using my traps to abduct my arm further, that wouldn't take away from the side delts. It would just continue the movement with a slightly, uh, the involvement of slight other musculature. It's like if you squat deep enough in the squat, you start to use your glutes more. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you're using your quads less. It just means you're using something else in addition to that. And now you're getting a good glute workout too. So um, when people say active range of motion, all this other stuff, uh, a lot of individuals just are have really shitty flexibility and or don't like to do stretch under load. So they say, oh, active range of motion. And it's just kind of like a, a new sciencey way for them to get out of full range of motion shit so like you know like um ben pakulski has like used this concept active range blah 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 yeah. and, they, and you see him do leg presses you're like fuck you you could be doing way deeper you could be putting your feet in a different place in the platform your quads can be getting a good stretch 
you know, like what's a really good example on the leg press of you've passed your, you know, proper range of motion when you're on your tippy toes or when your hips are starting to tilt in so far that your back is rounding, you know, when your knees are already at the highest flexion angle possible and you're still trying to do more of the movement, definitely that's bad. But the percent of people that say, oh, active range of motion and actually are committing any kind of flaw there is like 5% out of 100, you know, it's super small and most of the corrections are super easy. So we got to be really careful in uh, overthinking that concept. And I think full range of motion means you move the weight as much as you can with the muscles needed. A lot of times that's a lot more motion than most people would like to believe that they have. And there's nothing wrong with other muscles getting involved as long as you understand that that's part of the workout. Like I've, I've people just bitch and bitch, bitch about the lats or sorry, the traps getting involved in side raises. But I ain't even heard any motherfucker say your glutes get involved too much in squatting. There's no freaking difference. What's the difference? Do you, you, you have a problem where your glutes are too big? Your glutes MRV is being taken up by squats? No. Same with traps. You do you yeah. do lateralizers properly. That your traps get a fucking pump. They get uh, burn. They get sore. They grow. And I don't know. I don't. I've never seen anyone with traps that are too big. So I sure as hell don't have them. Uh, and it's also funny. Like if my physique was really trap dominant and I had small shoulders, I could see the critiques. My shoulders overpower every single fucking part of my physique. So when people tell me that I'm doing lateral raises wrong, I'm like. Okay, no bro shit. I know I'm bigger than you and you need to shut up. Why don't you give me a technical critique? And they inevitably just start stumbling during the technical critique. And then when they're like, well, but I'm like, but nothing, you got nothing. <laughs> I'm bigger than you and you fail to make a technical critique that makes any goddamn sense. Listen, I would love a technical critique that would make me not have to use the 60s. The problem, and actually, um, uh, what's his name? Evan Godby. Oh, yeah. um, uh, came to my defense, interestingly enough, uh, this gentleman named Kevin Maher, I think is how pronounced his name. Super cool guy. He was just being like, you know, why are you using the traps? Why don't you use less weight? Really take the traps out of the movement and, and just use like 30 or 40 pounds instead of 60. The thing is taking the traps out of movement is an active skill. It is a priority that it's taking away neural stimulus from my actual shoulders. Now I got, I'm like a fucking circus monkey. I got two things to do. Use my side delts and really try to keep my traps out of it. Why? Why do I have a trap injury? Like, what's the point? It's like, it's almost like this. Um, imagine you had to focus on two things during pull-ups, ready? Uh, using your lats and taking your biceps as much out of the movement as possible. Who the fuck does that? You pull your fucking chin to the bar using everything you can as long as you're not swinging. Then all the muscles, including your forearm flexors, all of your bicep muscles, etc., and your lats work in conjunction. If you want super isolation shit for your lats, you could do front lat pull downs or some shit. If I wanted to get my traps out of the movement, I fucking know how to do that. I bend over slightly and I do the Alberto Nunez style lateral raises. But th that's a different exercise, you know? And can you get big shoulders doing that? Yeah. Can you get monster shoulders doing that while not just using your side delts forcefully ever? I don't think so. There's no, I'm having no fun using the sixties, by the way, every time I pick them up, like what the fuck am I doing? But I can do strict, good lateral raises with them. And the traps just add to the little part of the movement that keeps me safe to today. I fuck, I was going to film today just to piss people off. I'm not going to do this, but today, uh, because my shoulders were feeling pretty decent for like the first nine reps out of 11, I didn't do the little shrug motion at all. I wanted to post that video and be like, see, <laughs> but I'm going to continue to do the little shrug motion because it keeps my shoulders healthy. And that's the situation. So the active range of motion thing, um, it's one of those that I'll, I'll finish this rant with the following. The burden of proof is on the claimant. If you say that active range of motion is a big deal and it's a big deal in your case, and you want to talk about why you're limiting a range of motion from what people normally do, you're going to have to have a little bit of an uphill battle explaining why that is. The burden of proof is on you. That's it. And every time I have shifted the burden of proof to active range of motion, people, nine times out of 10, what you get is just pure fucking nonsense. Like just, well, I thought like, cause the lat no longer abduct or whatever. And you're just like, you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Like, no, no, no. Just heard Ben Pakulski say it. Like, right, sweet. It's good enough for me. I think often I find the active range of motion is kind of coupled with constant tension. So you're keeping kind of obviously by not kind of shrugging up or by maybe doing a reverse fly and not bringing all the way back and just 
going to a certain point they're trying to limit and have that constant tension and i think we've discussed this in depth before in how constant tension maybe has a role for metabolite work but for the most part we can't really see many benefits there absolutely maybe has a role for metabolite work is correct but so do rest pause reps which is a form of full range of motion training without constant tension. So it's one of those, it sort of depends on how you execute it. There are ways to execute metabolite training, specifically if you want to do a lot of metabolite summation without generating a lot, um, keeping the volume as low as possible, but the metabolites as high as possible. Uh, tension on the muscle is great. Other than that, usually people aren't exactly running out of MRV on their side delts. You can do all the mechanical tension, all the volume, and metabolite accumulation by doing a full range of motion and not worrying about little pump reps. Um, and I, I think um, we have to be really clear here. I think people know this, but it's worth repeating. A lot of people just don't like to do full range of motion because it sucks and they can't use as much weight. And then they'll make excuses for why they're not using full range of motion. And uh, constant tension and uh, active range of motion, uh, unfortunately, most of the time is just an excuse for not using full range of motion. So, you know, because I've just too got too much goddamn hypocrisy to believe most of these people. Bodybuilders will say like, "I'm getting a good." Uh, it's all about the stretch and the contraction on these bent rows, and then you look at the video and they're just like having a fucking seizure with weight, and you're like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Like, there's no stretch, there's no contraction. You're big fuckstick retard who's fucking doing 180 kilos on rows. Like, shut up. Nobody believes you. You're just fucking off. So, you know, when I see someone who's no, you know, so, so like Alberto Nunez is known for like good full range of motion training. When he says something about like, well, I'd like to limit the range of motion here to target this and that I'm paying attention. But a lot of other people, I'm just like, shut the fuck up. Like, you don't even know how to train. Tell me about active range of motion. You can't even do a bent roll properly here. Do a squat. You don't know how to fucking squat. Get out of my face with that shit. I think, and I think just the only other thing I'd want to reiterate that I think maybe the listeners, it was not completely clear to them is it, it's when recommendations of full range of motion come out, that should hopefully be fairly obvious. There's your full range of motion, uh, not that you should use it as an excuse to then cut it. But if you can't go as deep as like Mike, like I know your squats are incredibly deep, but like they might not have the hip structures you have. That's fine, but don't limit your range of motion just for arbitrarily limiting it yep if the if the if you're still feeling it in the muscle somewhat if you are uh, doing it safely where for example if you start to have to round your lower back to get deeper in the squat bad idea if you're feeling it in the muscle still to some extent even if it's a passive stretch like hamstrings uh stiff legged deadlifts if your back is arched and you still feel it in your hams and they're being pulled apart nice and painful you're doing great right that's it that's your full range of motion. Now, some people can touch the floor with weight like that. Some people could go just below their knees, and that's the furthest they can go. But you know when you're fucking joking yourself. You know. And don't just don't put that shit into other people's faces. Don't make excuses. Oh, active range of motion. Eh, that's nice. You know, you can tell yourself whatever the fuck you think. And just to continue this conversation, because I, I wonder if you've experienced this yourself, Mike, and I think many of the listeners might have experienced this, and I've experienced it recently. And with pulling movements, sometimes like a Romanian deadlift, it might be, or maybe it's like lat pull downs. I find sometimes I feel like my form's good. I look at videos, it looks good. But when I get to a certain load and I try and increase the load, I end up feeling like the tension comes off. Maybe the hamstrings, the lats, they don't get as good a pump. I don't feel like they've been worked as much afterwards. Is there a balance there? Is that something you've experienced yourself, Mike? Is there anything you can kind of recommend to make sure that whether that's a problem or not? Absolutely. In the context of strength training, not as much, maybe not at all. In the context of hypertrophy training, I wouldn't use any weights that you can no longer feel the muscle getting the work that you're targeting. Even if you're doing good technique, sometimes the weights are so heavy that you just feel your core mostly, and you just have to be athletic enough, stable enough, and it's a struggle for survival. At that point, you got to worry about injury risk, first of all. And second of all, you're just not getting the highest quality work to the target muscle. With stiff-legged deadlifts and with good mornings, these are probably the two best exercises as examples for that. You can still maintain an arch lower back, but what you're going to do is subconsciously uh, you're going to make your hamstrings like at the knee. You're going to make the knee bend a little more to keep the movement safer. You're not even going to notice this. And visually, it's still going to look like a decent stiff-legged elephant. Good morning. But the reason you're doing this is because you don't want a ton of tension 
at such a stretch position because it's now risky. Yeah. So you're going to end up doing something and it's going to look okay. But if you lighten the load by 20 kilos, you're going to be able to do much better technique just by a little bit because, you know, you, you've felt this before, Steve, pushing the knee in and out a couple of centimeters. There's a big difference for how your hamstrings feel. If you can feel the muscle you're targeting as a bodybuilder, going heavier than that is just probably um, not very often a good idea. So, and then that does tend to happen. And, uh, you know, I've seen it happen in curls too. Like if I curl anything more than like seven RM kind of weight, I'm just moving stuff and my biceps aren't pumped. Yeah. They don't get sore. My forearms kind of just hurt. My elbows hurt. I'm like, what the fuck is the point of all this? And the answer is not much. <laughs> yeah, I find with pushing movements like squats with benching that sort of thing, never a problem, but with pull downs, like today I was, uh, I did two sets with a heavier load and I was like, just not feeling it in in the area, lighten the load, did an extra set, and uh, it just my lats blew up, and I was just like, right, that was good. <laughs> 100%. I think um, one of the most confusing exercises is heavy pull-downs. Um, people do them, like, bodybuilders do them, they like put like a 25 on top of the weight stack or something yeah. like that, and um, they just swing around. Like if you're gonna do heavy vertical pulling, um, assisted pull-ups or regular pull-ups, most bodybuilders are healthy enough to do them. I think just most bodybuilders don't want to do pull-ups because it's embarrassing when you can only do like six or seven of them and you're a huge guy and the girl next to you is doing six or seven also. Uh, so they like to do pull-downs because they always go super heavy. But um, anything less than a 15, anything heavier than a 15 RM on a pull-down is simply a waste of time for me. I mean, nothing's happening. I'm just wasting energy mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. But with pull-ups for some reason – I can do sets of five and still feel my lats and still feel everything. So I think there are some exercises that are more conducive to using heavy weight than others. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. Um, so no, that was a great discussion. And I will get to the next question, um, which I think is probably one you can cover quite quickly. And I do want to cover it, even though I, in my head, it doesn't seem like one that maybe would provide that much value. I think it might do to quite a few listeners. And that was uh, from Andrew who asked about meal order. Um, does it matter if you eat your veggies, then your meat, then your rice? Does it affect the absorption of nutrients, especially post-workout? Because um, the fiber slowing down the protein, the rice kind of getting in the way of things. Um, I, I feel like it's something that maybe people have thought about. Um, and I would love you to squash it. Yeah. So the answer is unless your meal takes like an hour and a half to eat, no. Because <laughs> everything mixes in your stomach anyway. Um, if it takes you a really long time to eat food, yeah, you're kind of like eating mini meals or whatever. Um, in that case, it's sort of goal dependent, but for most hypertrophy purposes, um, you know, you want to eat your carbs first and your protein after so that your carbs can anti-catabolic and set up insulin drive to prepare for the anabolism of the protein. But that's if you eat your carbs at like 4.30 and your, um, your proteins at like 4.00 or like 4.15, or sorry, uh, sorry, uh, 4.30 for your carbs and your proteins at like, you know, 5.30 or 5.15 or 5.45. I mean, I don't know. That's two different meals then, man. So um, if you can get through a meal in about half an hour to an hour, you you can mix it all up. Um, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something to the veggies thing, I will say. Uh, if you're dieting and you want anti-hunger effects, what you really should do Yeah is consume a bunch of fluids first, wait five or 10 minutes, and then consume uh, all of your veggies, and then wait five or 10 minutes or just consume them slowly. And then by the time you get to your proteins and carbs, you won't be nearly as hungry, they'll feel much more satiating, and your satiation will last longer until the next meal. Um, if you are, this is especially comes in handy, because you know, on a diet, you kind of just eat what you're told, eat what you're diet plan says, and you just got to do it anyway. But let's say you've come off of a fat loss diet and you're going to go on a mini vacation or a night out and you just come off a fat loss plan like a week or two ago. This is maybe one of your first meals where you're eating a little bit more freely. And you definitely don't want to like bloat up and go crazy and gain two kilos of body fat. So doing that high fluid consumption right before and like if let's say if you go to Las Vegas or something like that and you're going to one of those crazy all-you-can-eat buffets, which are unbelievable by the way, (laughs) um, just hit up the salad bar like crazy. Make yourself a huge fucking salad. Eat it. It's going to take you like 30 minutes to eat that thing. Then 
unleash yourself and have whatever else you want. But the thing is, you're going to be so full by then, or at least fuller, you're not going to be able to do as much damage. The, the, the worst way would be to like show up and start drinking lemonade, <laughs> eating, eating ice cream, then regular fatty food, and then being like, oh, I should probably have a veggie or two. <laughs> Right, then that's a problem. So if you do have to have hunger, hunger management, uh, that's how I'd go about it. But other than that, if you're just eating a regular bodybuilding meal, um, man, you can eat all of your proteins first and your carbs second. As long as you finish the meal within half an hour, you're good to go. And if it takes you more than half an hour to eat a meal, you're just struggling on a mass phase. Now, here's the deal. If you're struggling on a mass phase, your stomach and intestines are so backed up with food from other meals that shit still mixes together. Uh-huh. It really doesn't matter. So then it definitely doesn't. You can even eat your food spread out over two hours. It doesn't matter what you eat first. No, excellent. I, I, these questions always come from somewhere, and I'm sure there'll have been some guru who's touted something that. Um, oh my god! Of think, course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Always some bullshit. I remember on when I was dieting, my or in mini cuts, my strategy was to buy an iceberg lettuce a day, and that would be like my snacks throughout the day with some salsa. <laughs> nice, nice, that works. So the next question is from Alexander Demin, and he has asked, "What is your thoughts on rows versus pull-ups, chins, pullovers for the lats?" Um, he says it seems that mechanically rows have a much shorter range of motion comparing to the the vertical pulls. Also, the lats are not involved anymore when the elbow goes behind the back. He said, finally, the resistance curve of rowing does not match the body rowing strength curve. It's very easy at the beginning, and then most of the people fail at the end of the rep. Um, so I think that's mostly horizontal rowing versus vertical pulling for like lats. Yeah, I guess he read that Mano article about pull-ups and rows. Likely. <laughs> yeah. Um... The resistance curve thing, I don't think there's a fucking hill of beans point in discussing that. You're going to fail the movement somewhere. It's highly relevant where you fail it. Um, as long as you get good um, volume load total, you're going to fail somewhere. There's going to be a point where the movement's hard. Um, as far as range of motion, the range of motion is lower for rowing. Um but uh, that's concomitant amount of resistance you can generate is higher, usually. Makes sense. Um, they say that you can't, your lats no longer generate any of the tension when your elbows travel behind your back. I'm not sure if that's true. I'd have to think that through a little more. I've heard that claim, been very skeptical of that claim. People say all kinds of shit turns off when. Shit, I don't know what else is pulling you at that point. Um, I will make another – my biggest critique is the following, however. I, I do not do bent over rows for the lats. I do them for the back. There's a whole lot more going on with your back than just your lats. There's your traps. There's your rhomboids. There's your teres major. There are your spinal erectors. All of that shit gives you a huge, thick, fucking bulletproof looking back. The lats actually aren't super impressive in many cases, and the back is still enormous. Um, if you look at um, what the fuck is his name? Brandon Curry, super good bodybuilder, mm-hmm. pro. His back double bicep, his lats just really aren't that big. Like, where's his lats? There are these tiny little things at the bottom. But his uh, shoulders, his traps, his erectors, his rhomboids, his terrors majors are so fucking huge. He's got an award-winning back. Like literally, it's it's super impressive. So when people say like, you know, all bent rows aren't great for the lats. Yeah, but pull-ups suck dick for everything else I just mentioned except for the lats, right? So, uh, you know, I think that if you want the best, if you want to really target your latissimus dorsi muscles, vertical and sort of 45 degree pulling in this direction, pull-ups, pull-downs are better than bent rows. I would say that uh, for most of the fibers of the lats, but some of the fibers are more active with rowing. Um, and uh, uh, that's, you know, definitely. But if you're looking for more overall back development, bent rows are superior to pull-ups. If I had to only ever do one back movement, period, for my entire back um, ever, 
I would do cambered bar, full range of motion, bent over rows. Big stretch, big contraction, and every single part of the back has worked. Not a single fucking thing. All the femur traps, down to your rectors, and out to your outer lats, and everything in between isn't worked. So if you want the best exercise for the back, that's probably it. But that's really fucking stupid because why do we need the best exercise? You, you got a pull-up bar in your fucking gym, I sure hope, and you got pull-downs, you got rows. Use them all, right? But 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 uh, uh, Mr. Demons, if it's a very good question, I would say if you really want to target your lats per se, then – Probably two-thirds of your pulling volume should be vertical and one-third should be horizontal. If you want overall back development, I would say maybe half and half rowing to uh, vertical pulling. And I think if you want like front-to-back thickness and like a shitload of upper back gnarliness, um, then you probably want two-thirds rows to one-third pull-downs. So – or one-third vertical, two-thirds horizontal, one-third vertical. So that would be my answer. Cool. No, I think that's that's a, a great answer, and it, I think it reminds a lot of people. I think that often when we think about the back, we often do think of just the lats when there's a lot more there. And oh my god, um, I mean, this is why we have to hit it with so many angles. And I think, I mean, the mo- most people I see can handle more volume with their back than with the chest because there's just more there. Totally. Cool. Um, I think we have time for probably one more question, um, and that is from Masia. Balaj, um, mm-hmm. who has asked, thoughts on decline work for the chest? Um, he said, decline bench, but mostly dips, question mark. He says, I feel dips a lot in my chest, especially in the lower and outer parts of the chest. He said, would decline work be useful in this case? Yeah, sure. I mean, it targets what you're talking about. The thing is, like, I've never seen a single physique individual who I thought didn't have enough lower chest development, but had too much upper chest development. Um, it's almost always the other way around. You never can have too big of an upper chest and your lower chest is like, meh. (laughs) Um, so in some special cases, if you want lower chest work, great, but I think a combination of dips are great for triceps and, and for just stretching your chest too, which provides some tension all around kind of, and the outer part, that's really cool. Um, so dips are great for triceps and for that. So I think you should still use them, but the decline bench press I think you can spend your time better doing more incline work and having a cooler, more sort of armor-plated look to your chest than decline. Because remember, like, um, there's a difference between trying to get complete development and getting really good development that looks good. For example, let's say we had uh, developed a quad exercise. I have no idea what it is. I don't even know if it exists. That grew your uh, upper quads much more than your lower quads. Like, you'd start to... Legs would rub together, and you start to look like kind of like a bowling ball on peg legs. I mean, it's just universally aesthetically more appealing to have the sweep, which is a bigger lower quad than upper quad. But people be like, you know, so you'd see me doing a workout for sweep and somebody be like, why don't you target your upper quads, bro? And be like, get the fuck out of me because who the fuck wants that? You know what I mean? Like that's fucking stupid. So um, lower chest is kind of one of those situations where unless you really have made a critical analysis of your physique, you really need it. I don't understand why you'd spend time on it. And here's the best news. If you uh, arch and retract properly in a bench press, dumbbell press, your lower chest, and with dips because you're doing it for triceps anyway, your lower chest gets plenty enough work anyway. And it usually is a ton of sternal fibers. They respond really well. So it's almost one of these things where just by doing flat presses, you get all the lower chest work you need. The rest of your chest work needs to probably be incline-based so that you can have that armor plate of book. I could probably do another question, by the way. If, um... Okay, cool. No, yeah, we're... we're that makes sense, off. though? No, it did. It, it interests me because I did a Facebook status a while ago talking about something to do with pressing and uh, decline benching came up and quite a few people were defending the decline bench, whereas I was kind of like, I didn't think many people lacked or needed that area. Um, and I think it might have been Bjorg uh, Fagelli, I'm going to say his last name wrong, um, who is apparently quite a strong... Don't worry, you said his first name too. <laughs> you said his first name wrong too. <laughs> Perfect. Well, no one will know who this is, but he has been on, he's my reps, man. He has been on the podcast. Um, I think he might be a fan of the decline bench, and a few people were saying they really rated the decline bench. So it's interesting to hear just how yeah people have different arguments. I, I can't completely remember their arguments, however. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the decline bench is also a suicide machine. If you miss a rep on there, you're going to die. It's going to choke you to death. Um, it's a pain in the ass to unrack. Most, a lot of gyms don't have them. 
Um, it's you can use a lot of weight on a decline bench, but the range of motion is small. It's hard to get a stretch. I'm fuck, dude. I'll tell you this: almost nobody big and strong does decline benching. This is just incredibly rare to see. Uh, flat benching, totally incline. Hell yes, incline dumbbell press, absolutely. But that's the kind of thing that makes your chest look cool. If you do decline benching, if you like the exercise, sweet. But in the sense of developing a great physique, it's a low priority movement, I would say. Um, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, like sumo rack deadlift, sumo partials for bodybuilders. Like, like, what exactly are you getting out of that? Like, who knows? Mm -hmm. MRV spent better in other places. Cool. Right, yeah, let's get to the, the final question, which was from Troy Schultz, who said, how does the importance of meal frequency vary with the different phases of dieting? So maintenance versus matting, massing versus cutting. Yeah, great question. So um, the cool thing about massing is that because your meals are so big, you have food all the time in your bloodstream. And so if you eat like four times a day on a mass phase, you're never in a caloric uh, deficit, even transiently, and there's no problem. Um, if you're dieting and you're eating in small enough meals, then uh, yeah, you're going to get into some areas, especially with protein, where you don't have any amino acids really in the blood or not enough of them to be sufficiently anti-catabolic to save enough muscle. So more expanded meal frequency is probably better. Um, on a probably better, probably serves you a better, um, gives you a better yield, is more worth your time on a fat loss phase than on a muscle gain phase. Um, so in a muscle gain phase, if you measure like blood nutrient concentration, because you're fucking pounding food at every meal, it's just pretty much flat. It's maxed out anyway. It's just all the time, right? But um, you know, if you have very few meals, or sorry, if you have very little food, when you take it matters, right? It's kind of like if you have, uh, you know, a gas tank that is enormous, where the gas stations are on your trip doesn't fucking matter because you can fuel up here, you can fuel up there, no worries. If you have a really small gas tank, you got to look at the map and figure out where the gas stations are and make sure they're frequent enough for you to refill because otherwise you're going to be in a situation where you don't have enough fuel. Um, another complication. Uh, not just meal frequency, but I'll speak to meal timing in general. This is probably something that individual had in mind as well. Uh, it becomes more important on a fat loss phase, and here's why. Uh, Pre-workout energy becomes a very sparse commodity. So if you do like people say like, oh, I'm doing intermittent fasting, I do a fasted workout. Well, clearly you're not that lean because if you got really lean and tried to do fasted workouts, you would just die upon getting into the gym. Right? There's no, I have never heard of anyone doing intermittent fasting to get into contest shape, for example, because the contest levels of lean, if you haven't eaten for 16 hours, can you imagine that shit, Steve? You haven't eaten for 16 hours, you show up to the gym, you start warming up and you just die right there on the squat rack, right? <laughs> Like it's just not going to happen. So if someone you know asks you, "Hey, when do I eat my pre-workout meal?" I'm like, doesn't matter, bro. Timing's a myth. Like, yeah, they have some kind of point. If you're on a mass phase, when you it's food everywhere, you eat five hours ago, there's still food. You eat two hours ago, there's food. But you know, if you go with these long fasting periods and don't get a pre-workout meal at the appropriate time, especially if it's small, right? Imagine your pre-workout meal. 30 grams of carbs and 25 grams of protein and basically no fat. Like you place that meal somewhere between an hour and two hours before training, you get a little spike in energy. If you place it anywhere behind that, it'll just be completely digested. You'll be fucking starving again right when you hit the gym. It'll be really, really bad. Uh, post-workout, intra-workout as well to some extent, but post-workout, catabolism is really high. On a fat loss phase, it's really high. You're going to want to take a post-workout meal as soon as possible after training to mute the catabolic processes. Um, to begin recovery for next time, you know, on a mass phase, you know, your pre-workout meal is still digesting while you finish your workout. So you got an hour or so buffer, but you know, on a fat loss phase, that's really gnarly. There's nothing in your stomach by the time you finish your workout, unless you get post-workout nutrients ASAP, you're in um, a little bit of catabolism, a little bit of catabolism, but over days of that and weeks of that and months of that shit adds up to you losing muscle. So um, I think nutrient timing is Oh, you know, intermediately important on a maintenance phase. Um, although like probably least important on a maintenance phase, you can get away with a lot more in a mass phase as long as you eat, you know, enough total food. And then on a fat loss phase, you get, got to get more particular with that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting you talk about that because I've actually found when I masked, when I cut my, I mean, food selection obviously changes and basically my, um, my fiber might stay pretty much level, but I'm eating like double, triple carbs. Um, so all my sources are very easily digestible when I'm massing mm. versus when I'm cutting, I'm like, try and make things Greek yogurt, vegetables, like things that are slow digesting to try and kind of blunt that pure hunger that's going to come along. Whereas massing, it's like you want that hunger almost. 100%. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, struggling would be in over-exaggeration. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm moving from 250 to 255 right now. And man, finding the ability to eat. <laughs> I mean, I'm consuming some veggies right now, but it's a very small amount, just enough to keep me healthy. Mm-hmm. And the, most of the foods are much more fast digesting than they normally would be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Plenty of mashed potatoes, things like that, because... Again, it's you gotta you gotta get hungry, but it's the opposite opposite situation on fat loss. Yeah. So yeah, I would say, um, like with most things, you have to be more meticulous about almost everything on a fat loss in order to prevent muscle gain. So or, sorry, in order to prevent muscle loss. Perfect, and that actually ties in really nicely to the psychology of maintenance, in that things just matter much less. Um, so perfect, I think. We have done as many questions as we can. I think we're only one off uh, finishing this time round. So well, I fuck will... it. Let, let, let's finish it. Have let's we got time? It. I, yeah, I got a couple minutes. Okay, perfect. Um, this is from David Beamish, who said, we know that during a primer slash maintenance phase, one's diet is isocaloric. Should one's macros or food choice, and we kind of will t- touch on this, um, regarding palatability be different depending on the phase Um is it before massing, mini cutting, or an extended cut? He said, in other words, how can food selection or macros during a primer phase potentiate subsequent phases? How does the commit, committed athlete balance optimality versus taking a break from rigid foods choices or macros? Yeah, so remember the committed athlete understands that they are a psychologically based human machine and and optimality estimates and approximations take psychology into account. Uh, Psychology is not beside the point for optimality. It is part of the optimality equation. So if you want to be optimal in your approach, you have to consider your emotions and your hunger levels and your tendencies as well. So it's part of the, it's not like, oh, I wish I was a machine. Well, you're not, but you are a machine with the following constraints, including psychology, and you have to attend to them. That being said, a lot depends on where you're coming from in the maintenance phase. So let's talk about a couple of situations. I actually am um, writing the RP Diet Book 2.0, and I just finished a huge discussion about this. Um, I'm at 187 single-spaced pages for the book with no no graphics. It's going to be a 400-page book. It's going to be fucking unbelievable. Every day I finish writing sections, I'm like, wow, this is going to be so sweet. It's just like good stuff. Um, But I I finished writing about this a little while ago, uh, phase transitions and FPRH and stuff. Um, When you're coming out of a pretty tough fat loss phase and you're entering a maintenance phase to recover from it, your uh, palatability should be very low at the beginning of the maintenance phase so that you don't overeat, right? Because if I give you brownies as soon as your diet is over, well, you're going to erase the diet in a couple days or you know, a couple weeks or whatever. So um, you're going to start with low palatability and you're going to work your way up in palatability as you get less and less ravenously hungry. Um, I take my first formal actual cheat meal where I eat whatever for a meal two to three weeks after my competitions or after really hard fat loss phases. Right afterwards, I don't even do that. Just more low palatability food. Just double the oatmeal, which, you know, if you're fucking depleted enough, is amazing. (laughs) You don't need any more than that at that point, right? So we climb the sort of hedonic staircase, uh, but we start on a very low rung in maintenance after a fat loss phase. Maintenance after a, a massing phase, after a muscle gain phase, um, you can have plenty of very hedonic foods, uh, of very tasty foods, high palatability, because you're living the life and you're enjoying. And what you want to kind of do, if you haven't already in your muscle gain phase, is actually get sick of enjoying and get sick of high palatability foods. Um, you, you know, we all have this tendency that if we eat enough junk food, we just want to clean things up. You ever have that, Steve, where you're just like, oh, I can't fucking eat any more pizza. Fuck this. Like... Like maybe I love pizza, pizza, but maybe not pizza, <laughs> but anything, anything else, right? So, 
um, in a maintenance phase before a long fat loss phase, um, you want to do is eat plenty within reason of high palatability foods. And as you start your fat loss phase, still in, in, still have some pretty good palatability foods in there. As the fat loss phase descends, it gets harder and harder. You decrease your palatability to match the degree of hunger so that when you're ravenous, it's oatmeal and chicken breast so that you can't overeat that shit or you just won't be super excited about it. You know, won't have rebound hunger from it. But at the beginning of a diet, what you definitely don't want to do is start a diet and go right to low palatability. Because though that won't make you cheat, it'll uh, increase the chance of burnout. Six weeks into that diet, you'll be like, I can't do any more fucking broccoli and chicken bullshit, right? Because the problem of eating low palatability without low calories is you just you just make you quit eating and you just won't want food and you'll want the enjoyment that you're not getting from food and you'll go to tastier foods to get it. But if you are having some tasty foods at the beginning of the fat loss phase, as you're honest with yourself and being like, you know, when you have like a, like a post leg workout meal on week three of a diet and it's a really tasty meal and you're like, oh, that was really good. Ooh, I could have another one of those. Oh, time to shut it down. Time to step on the scale down in palatability, right? Mm-hmm. Not all the way down, but time to maybe that, that kind of food, that super tasty food. Let's take it down a notch. And then for a couple of weeks, that notch works really well. And then you start to get really crazy again. You take it down, you take it down, you take it down. Um, so... Uh, those are the two scenarios after a muscle gain phase and after a fat loss phase where I can think of uh, for maintenance. And in, in one of them, you keep the palatability high all the way through and even at the beginning of the diet is high. But in the other, of course, after a fat loss phase and maintenance, you scale palatability up slowly as your body as your body's hedonic food-associated drives reduce because you're exiting the hypocaloric condition and recovering from that diet fatigue. Did we leave anything out? Is there another time of take a maintenance phase that, or a primer phase that we sort of – I'll, I'll say one thing. If you're eating pretty constrained on a maintenance phase for whatever reason, maybe you just don't have amazing genetics and if you eat really indulge, you get way too fat. Let's say it's a maintenance phase – in in between two hard diets and one of them ends with a show, you're never going to be able to go back to normal dieting during that time. So what a lot of people do is they'll do a blowout meal before their next hard diet starts. You know, like the day before the diet, I'll have a huge meal. Don't do that because it's just going to make you hungrier and piss mm-hmm. you off. Only – so when I say eat high palatability on maintenance, I mean if you've been eating high palatability on a muscle gain and then you're in maintenance, keep up the high palatability and keep it even into a fat loss phase. But if you're really tempted with high palatability, you know you shouldn't have it, one little spike is not a good idea, which is why I'm actually against cheat meals almost entirely because mm-hmm. that shit will just make you hungrier and make you more pissed off. Yeah. No, I think that, and actually that transition that you talked about kind of dieting, maintenance, and then into like contest prep is exactly what I did. And what I found helped me was, and just like if you have like deloads, you might have a diet break involved with that just for that week, mm. just layering on top something on top of what your diet foods were already, um, rather than kind of, yeah, transition it rather than just like, or layering and removing layers. I think I just like sure. that approach generally. Sure, totally. So you might have like a, like a cookie after a good clean meal, as opposed to having a whole meal of pizza or something. Cause if yeah. you do that, you'll just be like, I just want pizza forever. Fuck this <laughs> bodybuilding diet, that sort of thing. Yeah, completely. And actually the only element I think we didn't touch on was the macros. Is there anything macro wise for maintenance that you can do? Um, is it, I, I tend to go with people protein and then wherever things lay, but there might be, I don't know if there's any scenarios in which you might monitor or change that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in most maintenance phases, so again, it depends on what you're doing. If it's a maintenance phase between a muscle gain phase and a fat loss phase, and you're doing low volumes of training, that's a really good opportunity to eat more fats and fewer carbs because you don't need the carbs. Yeah. Um, you're not driving an abolism. You're not. You don't have to supply a lot of carbs to replenish from dieting and from cardio and to drive anti-catabolism because there's not much catabolism going on. So it's a good opportunity. Maintenance phase is a good opportunity lower carbs, higher fats, and more cheat meals, basically. On the other hand, if your maintenance phase is basically part of a recovery from a diet, you want to start putting in carbs first because you're going to be training with more volume. And you want to – because so basically what happened was on a fat loss diet, you cut 
fats and you probably had to cut carbs towards the end too. The first thing you're going to put back in is carbs. Uh, you can have minimum fats and then put in carbs. And when you max out your carbs, then you're going to start putting back extra fats. Um, if you're so inclined and if you're doing the Broderick Chavez high carb mass, you're never even going to put those fats back there just every now and again for a cheat meal. And then you just put in more and more carbs. But on a maintenance phase where it's not a re diet recovery, but it's really just a maintenance phase between like a muscle gain phase and a fat loss phase, good idea to get away from high carb eating because uh, somebody like Broderick will actually tell you this. High carb eating is exhausting, um, especially after a muscle gain phase. Um, and you kind of on a maintenance phase just want to move to eating um, like a high protein, slightly higher meal frequency, normal person. Like you just have normal meals, normal breakfast. You just have a couple more egg whites than everybody else does. And then you'll have a protein bar between meals where other people won't. But other than that, you eat more or less like a normal person. So you higher protein, moderate carbs, moderate to high fats. When you start dieting again, you reduce your fats a whole bunch, you drive your carbs up, you start to recomp probably, and uh, all the good things happen because then eating any more fats than you really need is kind of like carbs you should have been eating anyway. Mm -hmm. Perfect. No, I like that. And I think also something that you'll probably like just happens anyway is because you're going from maintenance and your higher fats and you're bringing those down and not so much your carbs when you go to diet is fats are way more energy dense. So it's much easier to cut those out. They don't really keep you that much fuller kind of in terms of volume. So that's a really nice element. Super. So when you're on a maintenance phase before a big fat loss plan, you're actually eating quite a few calories. You don't feel very full because you're more, more cheat meals, more fats. Then when the diet comes and you start to sort of eat what bodybuilders call clean, which really is, you know, mostly whole grains, et cetera, and low fat, high carb, the first couple of weeks of your diet, you're like, oh my God, I'm so full. Fuck, this sucks. Um, which is great is the longer on the diet, you can say that fullness is the problem the less time that diet fatigue is affecting you. There will be times when you hit shit hits the fan. You know, uh, the kind of diet you really don't want to see for a contest competitor especially is if it's a 16-week diet in the first two weeks, they're like, I'm pretty hungry. You're like, I don't know if you ever had that as a coach, but you're like, oh my God, you're going to die. <laughs> this is not good. But if, if the first month they're like, I don't even feel like I'm dieting and they're losing, you know, a, a kilo every week or two, you're like, Pfft. Yeah. Perfect. It's funny enough, um, the RP templates, one of the main feedback we've piece of feedback we've been getting for, for the entire lifetime of the templates, which is years now, uh, in all of the different versions, is um, a bunch of people will start the templates and be like, oh my God, I can't believe that like fat loss tab has me eating so much food. And all the other RP clients just jump down their throat and they're like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like they're on cut three or something, you know? <laughs> and, and it's one of those things where they're like, either they're like, shut up. <laughs> or if they're nicer, if they're in a better mood, they're like, hey, listen, enjoy these times yeah. because they are going to be going. And the longer you can enjoy them, the better. You know, some, some people with super good genetics, um, we've had people do what we call the base tab, which is really a maintenance phase. Uh, some people have lost like 15 pounds over three months on the base tab. They're like, I never moved away from base. And they just have abs now. And you're like, mm. <laughs> people are like, I hope you die. <laughs> like I'm on fat loss three and I'm starving to death and I barely losing any weight. So yeah, the longer you can eat the, you know, super voluminous food and not feel hungry, the better. Yeah. Perfect. And I'll, I'll, I'll close it there. Cause otherwise I think I could just keep, um, keep talking to you and uh, you would miss whatever you need to get to. Um, Likewise. So I want to make sure uh, everyone knows that always we have the links below to kind of Renaissance periodization. You can find out more from Mike RP plus, which if you like this sort of Q and a setup, James Hoffman and Mike are on there every week doing a Q and a. Um, so you'll get much more of that. So definitely check those out. And is there anything else you want to kind of um, let people know about Mike? Well, because I know you, you have some very uh, dedicated folks that listen to this. Um, the Renaissance Diet 2.0 will be out this summer. Um, it's uh, currently – I'm the head author on it, so I'm writing probably 80% of the book. Um, I'm not expert, expert enough to write the whole thing because we have an entire chapter on endurance nutrition that uh, we have another individual writing for us uh, from RP who's wholly unqualified to do that. Um, there's like how to you diet like a vegan, this, that, modifications for pregnancy, which I have no fun clue about. Um, and um, that book is going to be super comprehensive, super massive, 
And it's going to be one of those things that just covers such a broad swath of topics. Um, I'll put it to you this way. Last night, I stayed up until one in the morning because I was finishing not a chapter, but a section in a chapter on monitoring progress. That section has a large paragraph of multiple bullet points. Actually, let me bring it up. Let me let me tell the let me tell the, let me show the folks really quick. I'm not going to show it. I'm just going to say it. So, for every single major method of body composition, um, we have the following. Okay, the method, the description of the method the accessibility of the method. So like skinfold, for example, mm -hmm. right? The cost of the method, the difficulty slash time, the precision, reliability, accuracy, when to use, tips on how to use and when to avoid. Wow, nice. We have 12 total methods. Let me see if I can read them off really quick. All right. Uh, body weight. So just go stepping on the scale. BMI, body mass index. Waist to hip ratio or body circumference, uh, biological impedance analysis, BIA. There's a page on that. Repetition strength to estimate muscle mass. Very cool. Yep. Uh, mirror details slash how clothes fit, because those are a thing. Um, skin folds. Then that's a page and a half, Jesus. The bod pod. Underwater weighing. DEXA. Uh, Visual densiometry, which is when a computer scans your body and you step on a scale and it tells you how uh, voluminous you are. It's basically like a bod pod with a camera. And then MRI. So that's 12, I believe, body composition methods. Each one has about two thirds of a page. So I wrote like, I don't know, eight pages of text last night about it. So people would be like, you know, if you have a question like, how do I, is the DEXA worth using? Or what about skin folds? Boom. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah, so it's going to be sweet. So get excited now, but wait till summer. <laughs> <laughs> You're leaving it for summer, and this is the diet book that everyone's going to want to di use to diet for summer. <laughs> I know, man. I wish I could do it faster, but it's one of those, like, you know, we really want to do super well. Mm -hmm. So we're taking our time. We're going to put in lots of graphs and figures. I've got uh, Tiago working on the references. Okay. Um, it's going to be just like the health book. I think the references are going to be external because there's going to be probably like 50 or 70 pages of references. Um, so if you want to do extra reading. <laughs> Amazing. No, I think yeah. I love it when the references are there just because sometimes a study just takes your fancy and you're like, I want to read more into that. So that's fantastic. Go down a PubMed wormhole. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. It sounds really good for coaches and kind of people just interested in it anyway and want to do it for themselves. So Absolutely. Amazing. I want to thank all the listeners for your questions. We do now need more and I will be requesting more soon. So do join the Facebook group if you want to get those across. Um, and again, as always, massive thank you to Mike for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Steve. I'll see you guys later.